Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure to welcome you back to the Bodleian Library. That is, of course, assuming that some of you made it here when you were uh, up at Oxford. I see some, some nod nodding, so well, well done you. It's my great pleasure to um, uh, talk to you this afternoon about the Bodleian's great acquisitions. So um, we have 400 years, um, and in that time we've amassed roughly 11 million printed volumes, millions of manuscripts and archives, uh, a million and a half maps, I, I could go on. And obviously I'm not going to talk about every single one, so I've had to be selective this afternoon. So I apologize if I will miss or skip over your favorites, um, but I'm going to try to give you uh, an overview of some of the highlights of our collecting, but also to set that in a context of the kinds of research and uh, educational materials that the libraries collect for the benefits both of the current um, uh, students, academics and researchers of the university, but also for the future. And um, to some extent for the international community of scholars who come to use our resources. And I'm going to begin not by showing you medieval manuscripts or ancient charters, but by showing you the kinds of things that are most commonly used by those who consume the resources of the Bodleian Libraries today. And they are predominantly electronic resources, electronic journals, databases, data sets, um, across all disciplines. And I came seven years ago from um, uh, a position at the University of Edinburgh. And at Edinburgh, we thought that we were a research-intensive university. But let me reassure you, ladies and gentlemen, they are just not on the same planet as Oxford. In terms of research intensity, this place is the most um, in intense research community on the planet. And our consumption of all sorts of digital resources today um, exemplifies that um, that sense of critical mass of research that's going on here, again, across all subjects. So um, last year, in the last academic year, around six and a half million journal articles were downloaded from the databases that the Bodleian Libraries supply to Oxford academics. And that's purely by Oxford staff and students. And I'm, I'm pausing at one particular resource called JSTOR, which is um, one of the, the best used um, uh, collections of, of electronic journals across all disciplines, and we are the heaviest user of this resource of any university in the world. And I'd just like to, to highlight the importance of um, the electronic acquisitions that we make um, uh, every day for our current research and, and teaching activities. And they consume a huge amount of our um, financial resources because they're very expensive. But I think they, we think they provide excellent value for money for our, for our academic community. And we've been trying to make serious strategic investments over the last um, uh, six or seven years in those corpus of materials. So um, when I arrived in 2002, 2003, we subscribed to about 12,000 electronic journals. And today it's around about 30,000, which is the biggest selection of any university in the UK. And um, we spend, um, a couple of years ago, we spent about two and a quarter million pounds, um, which was roughly a third of our acquisitions budget on those kinds of, of materials. But our great collections that I'll go on to talk about are really based on a bedrock of um, printed materials that have flown into the Bodleian since Sir Thomas Bodley struck this beautiful deal with the Company of Stationers back in 1610 that made us what we call today a copyright library or technically speaking a, a, a library of legal deposit. And we were indeed the first such library in the UK, and to some, uh, some would argue the first such library in the world. Um, at first it was just an agreement, and it became enshrined in law in the Copyright Act of Queen Anne in 1710. And it means, roughly speaking today, we have a thousand books, new books, arrive free of charge every day, every working day, that is. And... Um, 
we think it's worth to us, if we'd had to go and buy those books, we'd have to spend about £9 million on them. And, of course, that's £9 million which we can spend on other things, like electronic journals. Um, but it does come with cost, so we spend a lot of money processing these materials. And, of course, many such materials we wouldn't necessarily go out and buy. Um, motorcycle maintenance manuals, um, children's comics, which today may not be regarded as the, the stuff of current research in the University of Oxford, but, of course, in 400 years' time, well, they might be. Um, but just to set legal deposit in the context of our other collecting, in 2007-8, we purchased about 40,000 new monographs but acquired a further 85,000 through legal deposit free of charge. And the similar picture for our, our journal subscriptions. And, of course, through legal deposit, we also collect other things like printed maps, also electronic mapping, digital mapping, and, and printed music. Um, the first folio of Shakespeare is one of the great cautionary tales I like to, to, to tell about our history of legal deposit. Of course, in 1623, when the first folio, one of the most famous books in the English language, was issued, we received a copy actually from the publisher himself, who presented it to the Bodleian Library. Um, but by 1663, when the third edition of the complete works of Shakespeare was published, we regarded the first edition as superfluous. It was superseded, so we got rid of it. Um, only, for, of course, for the passage of time to demonstrate what an important book the first folio was. And so when the uh, later owner of that great historic volume walked into... Uh, an office just across the quadrangle in 1906 and said, look what I found on the family bookshelves. We, of course, made a great effort to purchase it. And um, the, the Chancellor of the University, Lord Strathcona, at the time dipped into his own pocket and we were able to acquire it back. So we still say today that we have the only copy of the first folio of Shakespeare that was um, still in its original home. Of course, it wasn't in the original home for about 300-odd years um, in between it first coming and now, but we'll gloss over that. And I mentioned that Legal Deposit brings um, children's comics, and of course um, some of uh, children's literature is now both very important for research. We have um, you know, scholars in this university researching the history of, of children's uh, learning and uh, literacy, uh, both in the humanities and in the social sciences. But also, comics like The Eagle are very valuable, very, very collectible. And there's, a, there's another nice Oxford connection in, in The Eagle in that it was actually written by uh, Chad Vara, uh, the founder of the Samaritans, who um, was described at the time as a tough fighting parson in the slums of the East End. Um, and uh, Dan Dare was very much modelled um, on, on, on Chad Vara, I think. But I'd like to move on to some of our more historic acquisitions, the kind of items that we would now regard as part of the world's heritage of, of learning. And that story begins in the 12th century with um, the miscellaneous acquisitions of, of medieval manuscripts, books of learning, used for the university, but were transformed in the middle of the 15th century when Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the brother of Henry V, gave a magnificent collection worth, in today's terms, millions and millions of pounds to the university of over 400 medieval manuscripts. And here is um, a, a medieval depiction of Duke Humphrey uh, being presented with, with a book. But Duke Humphrey was a man of great learning. He um, was associated with the humanist of the humanistic movement of, of the 15th century and collected works like this um, Italian Renaissance copy of Aristotle in the, the, um, the, the commentary of, of uh, Aretino, which marked him out as being a very advanced uh, uh, statesman for his time. And so the university, to acquire this collection, transformed it into being a, a place of, of modern scholarship. And the university authorities uh, recognised that they needed to build a room suitable to house such an important acquisition, and that is the room directly above this one, 
which today we call Duke Humphreys Library after uh, that great donation, to commemorate that great donation. Of course, uh, the bookshelves were, um, that you see in this illustration and which are indeed up above us today um, date from the 17th century refounding of the library by Sir Thomas Bodley. Um, but the room was fitted out with medieval bookshelves which were then stripped out together with the books during the Reformation of the 16th century. And today only 11 of the 440 or so survive, many of them overseas taken by recusants um, to save them from, being, from the pages being torn out and sold to butter makers to wrap butter in and pie makers to line pie dishes. Such was the zeal of the, the Protestant reformers in Oxford. So this wonderful man, Sir Thomas Bodley, who had been a diplomat in the court of Elizabeth I, but had also very astutely married a rich widow, um, came back to his old university essentially as a retired man um, working at Merton College and found the room above us, um, the famous library of the university, laid waste. It had been ransacked, as I mentioned, by the Protestant reformers of the, 16th of the middle of the 16th century, and he regarded it as disgraceful that the university that claimed to be a modern progressive institution should have no decent central library. And so he set it uh, as a task for himself with the approval of the chancellor of the university to refound the library, to re-roof it, to fit it out with new bookshelves, and most importantly, to attract a network of collectors who were his friends, great statesmen of the time, to furnish it with important books. And that's just what happened in the first century or so after the library was reopened in 1602 as the public library of the University of Oxford. Um, the Bodleian essentially became the de facto national library. And you can see that by the, uh, the deal that Sir Thomas struck with the Company of Stationers to receive new books in 1610, um, the books which the Earl of Essex had seized during a dramatic raid on the Portuguese port of Faro in 1596 were, were, were placed here, um, uh, essentially for the nation. And there are various other great collectors, great benefactors to the university, who Sir Thomas Bodley and his successors, um, as those who, who championed the work of the library, gathered together as a great store of honourable friends, uh, in Sir Thomas's words, to bring great collections to this library. Great collections like fantastic medieval manuscripts. This is um, a famous copy of the Romance of Alexander. Um, it was written in, uh, in Ghent or, or, or uh, Bruges around, in the 15th century and owned by Edward Woodville, the Earl Rivers, and possibly previous to that by a royal owner, Owner. It's a huge manuscript, richly illuminated, and was really one of the most deluxe books of its period. And also, where else could you find a picture of monks and nuns playing baseball other than the Bodleian Library? Um, other collectors like Sir Kenham Digby added to those original um, acquisitions of the, the first few decades of the 17th century, like the Romance of Alexander, with other medieval manuscripts recognizing that the Bodleian was, in the words of one writer, um, an ark to save learning from the deluge, a place where books and learning would be safe. Because, of course, the, 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 the ravages of the Reformation were still fresh in the public's memory and in the memory of learned men and women. Uh, in addition to, to medieval manuscripts came great collections of state papers, um, you know, essentially the archives of, of great uh, state figures like uh, William Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, and others. Um, what's less well known is that the Bodleian was also making very advanced strategic purchases. And in 1604, we were the first uh, one of the first three libraries in Europe to acquire books from China, in Chinese, that came on a ship which docked in Amsterdam um, in that year, and books were sold at auction, and the Bodleian sent an agent to make sure that it acquired its first Chinese books, like this printed work, uh, published in 1600, a collection of popular songs, um, which was essentially new, a new acquisition in 1604, 
Um, unfortunately, it was another 70 years before we had a librarian who could actually read the language it was written in and to, to, to shelf mark it with the, with the book um, uh, up the right way. But, you know, at least we had the books. The works of other civilization also came into the library in the 17th century. This one, uh, one of uh, six incredibly important and famous books uh, written in uh, pre-Columbian Central America. This one is known as um, uh, The Selden Roll, which came um, with the library of John Selden with, with several other books of its kind and uh, are today regarded as incredibly important cultural treasures for our understanding of, of Aztec civilization. From the other side of the world, also in the library of the great collector John Selden, came this extraordinary manuscript map, uh, written in China in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, and um, known for many years just as a rare and curious map of China, until about four years ago, when uh, the new Shaw Professor of Chinese History was um, researching for his inaugural lecture, looked at this uh, map and recognized that it was of fundamental importance for changing our view of how China uh, regarded itself with its neighbors. And this is essentially the earliest known depiction of China together with its trading partners on the eastern seaboard of, of, of Asia, showing the trading routes from various important trading ports and written by a Chinese cartographer. We don't know who. And here's just one detail for, of, of what we now know today as Singapore. And you can see the lines and the Chinese characters showing which goods were traded from which ports to which, which countries. So uh, we have a major... Um, conservation project underway at the moment to restore the map which is in terrible condition after all these years. Um, it's going to be in fabulous condition by the middle of next year when we will put it on exhibition and it will form then the basis of a major scholarly project to absorb its, uh, what, what it can tell us about Chinese, uh, Chinese culture, trade and um, it, it connections with, the, with, with its neighbours. At the same time, other antiquaries like Anthony Wood, um, a fellow of Merton College, were acquiring more local materials. This is one of the four copies of Magna Carta, the original engrossments, 13th century engrossments of the great uh, Charter of Liberties, which we have in the Bodleian today out of 17 that survive. And they were all collected by this incredible man, um, Anthony Wood, with the exception of one which came from Gloucester. But three of them were collected by, by Wood um, as part of the monastic archives of the Abbey of Osney, which, of course, had been dissolved about a century earlier, but were just lying around in various uh, uh, spots of Christchurch, which had acquired its lands. And Anthony Wood was allowed to just help himself to these great piles of rotting charters, including three copies of the Magna Carta. From the early uh, 18th century, there's then a second wave of collecting what are essentially national collections, great figures, great bibliophiles who were um, seized with uh, a zeal for collecting, but also a zeal for giving to the Bodleian. Um, and I'm going to show you some slides of these great, uh, great objects that were acquired as part of what were huge collections. Richard Rawlinson gave us thousands of, of manuscripts. Richard Goff gave us thousands of rare books and, uh, and manuscripts to do with English topography. Francis Dowse gave us thousands of rare books and, and manuscripts um, from all civilizations uh, of the best, the very best of their kind. But we were also making purchases, and uh, I'll, I'll mention one or two particularly notable ones in a moment. So Francis Dowse was a librarian. He was a librarian in the British Museum, but he was also a man of considerable private means, and he amassed a fantastic collection of spectacular books, and incredibly important research materials, but also bibliophilically um, wonderful great treasures like this 16th century illuminated uh, book of hours from France. Francis Dowse fell out with his employer, 
the, British, the library of the British Museum. Unfortunately, Bodley's librarian at the time was one of his chums and made a great point of befriending him. And lo and behold, in 1834, when Douse uh, died, still rancorously hating his employer, uh, the entire collection was, was gifted to the Bodleian. Um, here are a few um, illustrations from another, um, a printed book this time from Douse's gift. Um, a spectacular copy of the, uh, uh, the famous um, 1476 edition of uh, Pliny's Natural History, um, printed by Nicholas Jensen and illuminated for the, a great Florentine banker, Filippo Strozzi. And you can see some of those illuminations within, indeed, uh, a, a picture of, of Strozzi, um, a little illumination. You can see him with a crown, a crown on there. Another one of his uh, printed books is this wonderful uh, hand-colored, contemporary hand-colored um, book called The Peregrinatio ad Terram Sanctam of Bernard von Breidenbach, printed in Mainz in 1496, and essentially the first uh, tourist guidebook to the Holy Land with the stops on the way that you would make from Mainz, where it was, it was written and printed, uh, this, of course, being Venice. Um, part of the Rawlinson gift of this wonderful um, uh, apocalyptic French manuscript. And other collectors also added smaller but no less significant collections. This is um, the manuscript of uh, a text um, called the Shakuntala by the Sanskrit poet Kalidasa, who was regarded as the Omar Khayyam of Sanskrit literature. And Jones presented this first translation of that wonderful text uh, in English uh, to the Bodleian in um, 1778. And it, it, it today is one of our great treasures, along with the most important collection of Sanskrit manuscripts outside of South Asia, like uh, this extraordinary 11th century um, palm leaf manuscript called, uh, translated as The Perfection of Wisdom, one of only three survivors from the ancient Buddhist University of Bihar, um, which came in the 90, early 19th century. Um, Benjamin Kennicott, who was the librarian of the Radcliffe Camera, gave us a fantastic collection of Hebrew manuscripts, um, this being a, a German-Jewish Bible uh, from the 13th century, um, which together with the acquisition of the entire library of um, uh, Rabbi Oppenheimer of Prague transformed the library from being one of just having a handful of Hebrew books to being the greatest collection of, of Hebrew rare books and manuscripts out today outside of New York or Israel. Um, just to show that we, um, we were also collecting outside of, of Europe at the time, we have um, fantastic Japanese and Chinese scrolls. This one is a, a Japanese uh, 18th century hand scroll, or emakimono, um, showing the fairy tale of Urashima Taro, who was transported to an underwater palace as the guest of a queen. Again, from, from Asia, we have um, a 16th century Mughal court album of paintings uh, written for the Mughal emperor Akbar, which was presented by John Eliot in 1859. Other important Arabic manuscripts uh, uh, feature science very prominently, like this um, Ara Arabic work on astro astrology and astronomy um, called the Kitab al-Burhan. I mentioned before that in addition to the great gifts that were coming into the library during the 18th and 19th centuries, we were also buying books. And of course, because of the secularization of the monasteries and the Napoleonic Wars, incredible libraries were coming onto uh, the auction rooms of Europe um, from the uh, late 18th and early 19th centuries. And the Bodleian had incredible opportunities to buy books, if only it could raise the money. And of course, the library was relatively poor at the time, plus a change, but uh, the academic community rallied round, and in an extraordinary event in the 1780s, it actually issued bonds to, it, uh, to academics here um, to, to pledge money, which would be repaid over time by the library, but so that it could amass a war chest to bid in the auction rooms of Amsterdam and Paris. And one of the, uh, the great treasures that was acquired um, was this co our copy of the Gutenberg Bible, 
which had been owned by a French cardinal who, of course, um, uh, lost his, uh, his goods in the, uh, uh, the French Revolution. And in 1799, we acquired our, our Gutenberg Bible, um, which cost us roughly one-fifth of the entire annual budget of the library at the time. I don't think the university would let us do that again, but... Um, uh, other great collections that were being purchased um, at auction included the library of the Dutch philologist um, uh, uh, Philip Dorville, um, which was purchased in 1804 and included great manuscripts and, 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 and rare books, um, fantastic material for, of, in Greek and Latin, including some real, real treasures like this a manuscript which is called the Dorville Euclid. It's the earliest surviving manuscript of Euclid's geometry, which was written in the Imperial Academy of Constantinople in the year 888 by a man called Stephen the Cleric. And um, incredibly, the book um, has the name of its um, first um, uh, owner, a man called Arathas of Patros, and we have another book from his library which came in a different collection, which is called the Clark Plato, which is the earliest surviving manuscript of Plato, again from the ninth century. So um, an extraordinary opportunity to unite two books from the same um, um, Byzantine library. Um, I mentioned Richard Goff earlier, and he was responsible for um, making the Bodleian as one of the great places for studying English local history and his collection is still added to uh, this day, um, and there are still incredible collections which are barely known because of the, uh, the, the vast quantity of materials and our lack of really detailed catalogues. Um, but they included this, this wonderful um, drawing from 1725 of, um, uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll just read the inscription. It says, a Roman carving on a rock by the bridge at Chester. Um, drawn on the 3rd of August, 1725. And of course, you know, who knows whether this, this um, uh, sculpture survives today, but at least um, Goff collected a drawing that showed it in situ at, uh, at the time. Since the middle of the 19th century and these, these great acquisitions and you know, entire collections coming on block, our collecting of, of essentially national materials has changed somewhat. And uh, we've been collecting much more contemporary material, but also stretching the kinds of collections that we've been amassing from, you know, Greek and Roman authors and uh, religious texts to politics, the social sciences and, and contemporary literature. And I'd just like to, to share some of these with you. Um, a few years ago, we celebrated the 100th um, anniversary of the... Um, the writing of Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And we have the manuscript of, of that great work of children's literature that was presented to us by uh, Kenneth Graham's widow. But few people know that it, the story was actually started as a, an epistolary tale. Um, Kenneth Graham was separated from his family from uh, a period in the early tw uh, 20th century, and he stayed in a hotel in Cornwall and to keep contact with his son, he started to write these stories in, in letters that he would send every few days. And we have the whole collection of them, which are the first beginnings of the story that's so familiar to us uh, today. Other collections came in, including this um, extraordinary newspaper printed on the Antarctic ice and in one of uh, Scott's polar expeditions in 1908-1909 um, in the long uh, Antarctic winter to keep the crew and the, the team busy, they had took a tiny little printing press with them and printed this newspaper and bound it with uh, packing cases of cocoa uh, and, and other um, materials that they took with them. And it came to us in the, a wonderful collection called the Broxbourne Library that was amassed by um, uh, a dealer in industrial diamonds called John Airman, uh, called Albert Airman, and given to us by his son John, um, a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, um, in 1979. And one of the things that the Broxbourne Library is most famous for is spectacular contemporary 
and, and older book bindings, like this one uh, by the uh, French artist Paul Bonnet. Other literary collections came to us in the late 19th and 20th centuries, like the archive of the writer Percy Shelley, yeah, a great series of notebooks bequeathed to us by members of the family. And then my first job in 2003 was to unite the archives of Percy Shelley with those of his wife Mary Shelley and of her parents, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, the, the first feminist, and William Godwin, the anarchist, uh, called the Abinger Archive. Um, uh, um, we had to fundraise for about five and a half million pounds to secure the collection, which I'm pleased to say we did in about two years, and we're just about to uh, open an exhibition on that uh, collection. Come back in December to see our show called Shelley's Ghost, which features this incredible uh, archive, 20,000 pieces of paper from the great romantics um, of, of the early, uh, early 19th century. One of my favorites is the most spectacular um, proposal of marriage by a woman to a man. This dates from 1796, and I'll, I'll just read out the first paragraph. When there is not a good reason to prevent it, I wish you to dine with me, or I with you, of a Saturday, to enable us to bear the privation of Sunday with philosophy. You can guess what philosophy means here. Tomorrow um, is my turn and I shall expect you. This arrangement um, renders it necessary to alter the previous plan um, for, an, for ce soir. What say you? May I come to your house about eight to philosophize? <laughs> you once talked of giving me one of your keys. I then could admit myself without tying you down to an hour, which I cannot always formally observe in the character of a woman unless I tacked that of a wife to it. Now, how's that for a proposal of marriage? Which, of course, from Mary Wollstonecraft to William Godwin. Spectacular. Um, of course, Mary Wollstonecraft died giving birth to Mary Shelley, as you, as you all know. And at the heart of the Abinger archive is the manuscript of Frankenstein, one of the great, um, uh, you know, almost spectacular works of fiction. Um, and here is the notebook that she purchased in a Genevan stationer's shop um, just a few days after the famous uh, ghost story competition that they had in Byron's villa on the bank of Lake Geneva during a thunderstorm. And again, I'd just like to read, re read um, the first paragraph to you. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld my man completed. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected instruments of life about me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was about one in the morning. The rain battered dismally against the window panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. It's still powerful, and you can just follow her. She's writing it down, desperately trying to remember. And of course, um, it's been a manuscript of great controversy because you can see the crossings out and the little annotations which are actually in the hand of Percy Shelley. And there's been scholarly debate over who actually wrote Frankenstein. Was it Percy or was it Mary? Was Mary just an amanuensis copying out as, as Percy spoke or did she really come up with the text? And because we have the manuscript, scholars have been able to analyse it very, very carefully and there is now consensus that it really was Mary Shelley's great work with a few suggestions and alterations by, by Percy. Together with Frankenstein, over a century later, we have another great, uh, another very, very famous work that was translated into, into motion pictures, uh, um, the archive of J.R.R. Tolkien. And this is one page from the manuscript of The Lord of the Rings, Unfortunately, the rest of the manuscript was sold by Tolkien to an American university for the paltry sum of £20,000. Just think what it would be worth today. But thankfully, the rest of the archive remained and has been given to the Bodleian and is now a great scholarly research, his correspondence, his scholarly notes on, on medieval literature and so on. Another strange um, uh, literary collection to find in Oxford is the archive of Franz Kafka. 
Here's one of his notebooks. This is the story known as uh, Metamorphosis. Uh, the notebooks came to us in the 1960s thanks to um, uh, a young undergraduate who just happened to be uh, the son of one of Kafka's nieces and happened to sit at high table talking to the professor of German who said, well, actually, I'm quite interested in Kafka. You don't happen to know where the archive is. He said, oh, yes, would you like me to get it for you? And uh, it eventually appeared um, from the bank vault in Geneva miraculously into the Bodleian Library where it's been used by, by scholars ever since. Another uh, Oxford uh, connection is uh, a more contemporary writer, still living and still, I'm very pleased to say, very active, is Alan Garner. And this is the manuscript of his uh, most recent great work called Thursbitch. Uh, I commend it to you if you don't know it. We're, and um, he wrote it, I'm pleased to say, on um, the, an OUP uh, desk diary. Um, more recently, another great Oxford collection that came to us, is, of course, was the archive of Alan Bennett, uh, a spectacular gift. Um, he could easily have sold it to Texas, but where better to have the archive of, of, of a writer like Alan Bennett than his own university? And um, we're in the process of cataloging the collection at the moment. And there's fantastic boxes, which he actually sorted himself and wrote these labels uh, and pulled all of the things for his different projects together. And I said to him that, you know, he really, he really ought to have been a, an archivist. And, you know, just think what the archival profession has lost. I was joking. <laughs> um, more, we still acquire great works. We, 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 of course, spend most of our acquisitions budget on um, electronic journals. And in fact, we have no budget for the acquisition now of uh, uh, rare books and manuscripts and archives. We rely on the generosity of people like Alan Bennett to either give us their own papers or for supporters um, to donate funds to enable us to buy things like this fabulous 16th century Armenian manuscript to enable us to keep up the great collection strengths that were formed 400 years ago. Um, in 2002, we were able, with the help of the Heritage Lottery Fund, to add a spectacular Islamic manuscript to our holdings, an incredibly important atlas of maps um, uh, written around uh, uh, 1030 um, in uh, Iraq, and then um, copied in this copy around about 1200. And it shows um, Iraq at the center of the known world uh, here and depicts all sorts of places, um, Mediterranean ports. It suggests um, what kind of um, animals uh, were living in particular islands, what the buildings were like. And uh, it's been the subject of a major exhibition. It's been featured on, in t television programs. And has been the subject of a, of a major scholarly project by, the, um, uh, by scholars here in the university. Another great 20th century acquisition which has expanded our ability to support studies in, in the social sciences was the, uh, the John Johnson collection of printed ephemera. John Johnson was the printer to the University of Oxford and he amassed over his working life a collection of about a million and a half items of ephemera, single, mostly single sheets of paper, posters, advertising, uh, theatre bills, um, all sorts of odd bits of paper that most people would throw away, but he kept. Um, and thank goodness he did, because we have spectacular resources to study the history of graphic design, the history of advertising, the history of consumption, like these posters for um, the oil industry. You know, fantastic works of art, but also showing uh, the way that um, great industrial companies try to uh, attract the interest of, of the, the consuming public. Our map collections are also pretty spectacular. Richard Goff, who I mentioned earlier, uh, gave us you know, thousands of rare books and manuscripts, but he also gave us a tapestry. In fact, he gave us two tapestries, and they were two of a set of four huge tapestry maps that hung in the Sheldon family house in North Oxfordshire in, from the 1590s onwards. And they depict um, uh, places 
in the mid-counties of England from London to uh, Wales. And we think that they were hung because the Sheldons at the time were a Catholic family to depict both places that they might travel to, but also seat great houses of other Catholic families. And we were fortunate uh, a couple of years ago, 2007, to uh, purchase at auction the missing third uh, part of that series of four maps, the fourth uh, hanging in the Warwickshire Museum. And um, when we transform the new Bodleian Library, we will be able to show our tapestries together in the great um, entrance hall of that refurbished building. Other maps came to us from Francis Douse, of course, this great um, Venetian portalan from the 16th century. Um, other collections came uh, singly. This was purchased from the Earl, uh, from Lord Manvers in, 19, in the 1940s, and shows the uh, parish of Laxton in Leicestershire, which um, is one of the few places that still preserves the medieval strip field system. Of course, through legal deposit, we have acquired a spectacular set of the Ordnance Survey maps. Uh, it's undoubtedly the best in the world, including very, very detailed mapping from the late 19th century of places like, like Henley-on-Thames. Today, one of our major focuses of collecting is modern political papers, and those archival collections are very, very significant indeed. The National Archives recently suggested that we held roughly a third of the um, 20th century political history in our archives, and they include the, the, the archives of the Conservative Party themselves and the papers of, of six prime ministers. And, and papers of hundreds of cabinet ministers' papers, senior civil servants, senior diplomats, and so on. And um, fantastic posters, again, um, this time not from John, the John Johnson collection, but from the Conservative Party archive. Um, uh, they were re recently featured on a series of Conservative Party mugs. And um, modern political archives are not just in paper form. Um, we have Disraeli's archive, and he, of course, wrote thousands of letters and drafted his speeches in, in great notebooks and uh, communicated to his constituents by publishing little pamphlets. But today, politicians send emails. They communicate with their constituents through blogging and web pages, and we are trying to adapt our own um, organization to be able to ca capture those digital materials and keep them in a preserved state so that scholars in the university in 400 years' time will still be able to understand what was happening to British politics in the 20th century. Um, and here's a, a, for instance, a Barbara Castle, uh, when she died, she left us 500 boxes of paper and two PCs. So we've been extracting the electronic content from her PCs and uh, you can access them um, online now. And to some extent, that's a very difficult challenge. Um, one of my colleagues calls it digital archaeology, trying to find whether we actually can read the various obsolete floppy disks or get access to file operating systems that are long since um, vanished. Um, and uh, we have a major project to try and deal with this problem where uh, we're one of the leading institutions in the world um, I said we had six Prime Minister's papers. Actually, we have seven now. It hasn't physically arrived yet, but in about three weeks' time, um, the, the archives of Edward Heath, uh, another Oxford graduate who became Prime Minister, I think there are 23 of them, um, will arrive in the Bodleian Library. It's a vast archive. He kept over a 1,000 boxes of paper, um, but it's a very important archive because... Of course, Heath um, uh, lived a great age. He was in politics for a very long time. Indeed, since his days as organ scholar at Balliol College, you can see here, him here punting with his Oxford chums. And uh, he had very distinguished service in World War II and then later, of course, championed uh, the cause of Britain in Europe, arguably the dominating um, topic of late 20th century British political life. And so uh, there are already um, uh, uh, research proposals being formulated by our, our academic community because we've been able to acquire the archive. 
Um, in music, again, we have extraordinary strengths. Um, the manuscript of uh, Purcell's Ode to St. Cecilia, um, the score that Handel used to conduct the first and uh, subsequent performances of the Messiah with his corrections, you can see in crayon. Um, the bulk of Mendelssohn's archive came to us by another Oxford graduate, uh, although this particular item, this, and, and very few people know that Mendelssohn was a spectacularly talented uh, painter as well as a musician, um, and this is a presentation that he did for one of, his, one of the wives of one of his financial patrons, um, which we purchased a few years ago um, to, to add to the bulk of the archive that we already have. And in addition to the more serious works of music, we have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of items of popular sheet music from the music hall era, uh, like this rather amusing one, and this rather more soulful um, lithographic cover. Um, two years ago, we were able to uh, acquire this spectacular manuscript called um, uh, Erismena by the Italian composer uh, Cavalli, um, this is important because it's actually an English translation of the libretto, which brings back in time the date of our understanding of opera in the English language by about 30 years, into the 1670s. And uh, it appeared um, by a dealer trying to take it out of the country to sell it to an American university. And through the export license process, we were given the opportunity to match the sale price of £80,000. We had three months to raise the money. And fortunately, thanks to our supporters, we were able to do that. And this summer, we staged the first performance of it um, in, in modern times in the gardens of New College, thanks to the reader in opera studies, Michael Burden, and the New Chamber Opera. Today, as I mentioned at the start, a lot of our collecting is uh, digital, all those databases and electronic journals, but we also acquire digital collections by the process of digitization itself. Through a thing called the Oxford Research Archive, we're trying to amass all of the, the recent published work of our contemporary academics in one single place online. Um, and we digitize many of our great manuscript and printed holdings, like our medieval manuscripts, um, some of our oriental collections we regard as an opportunity for cultural repatriation uh, via the World Wide Web. And many of you will have seen that we partnered with Google to do mass-scale digitization. And um, we have about 140 million pages of Bodleian 19th century collections available freely online through the Google Book Search interface. Through a, uh, an innovative partnership with the University of Michigan, we're um, transcribing early English publications so that they can be searched online. Um, we've done to date about 35,000 texts, which is the largest corpus of encoded texts in the English language. And parts of that work uh, were seen in a project with the Folger Shakespeare Library called the Shakespeare Quartos Archive, um, which allows you to see both the original printed text but also the modern um, uh, transcribed text. Um, with a great collection like the John Johnson Collection, which is very visual, um, it's a natural to do digitization. And through some of these projects, like um, uh, our partnership with uh, ProQuest Information, we're able to generate income by selling access to some of those uh, digitized collections to other institutions. And I've just spent most of the last um, hour or so talking to you about our acquisitions of material, but of course that's just part of what the library does today. And I must remind you that uh, many of the collections that we acquire need conservation work, and we have a very skilled and capable um, conservation laboratory, which is one of the, the leading institutions in the world for the science of, of book and paper conservation. And um, that's a, an important part of the, the um, if you like, the burden of, of, of being an, ac an acquiring institution is having the responsibility for preservation as well. And part of that responsibility is providing safe and suitable accommodation for the thousand books a day or so that, acquire, uh, that are acquired by the Bodleian. And um, 
three weeks ago, we took possession of our new book storage facility um, just on the eastern side of Swindon, just uh, 24 or so miles away from Bodley, which um, is a high bay storage facility, uh, a state-of-the-art um, preservation environment for about 8.5 million printed volumes, which we hope will give us about 20 years' growth space. And of course, I mentioned that there are many, many downloads of our electronic material, 6 million or so last year, but our, our basic book uh, materials are also very heavily used. And this is a graph showing the last two years of um, queries of our main library catalogue. Uh, just under 8 million queries were made in the last 20 months or so. One of my favorite quotes about the Bodleian um, comes from that great uh, classicist, uh, writer, and pedant, A.E. Hausmann, who, in reviewing uh, a work by a, a German classicist on Horace, put in the footnote to his review um, where he'd spotted that this scholar had missed a variant of a particular passage in one of uh, Horace's poems, which is in a Bodleian manuscript, he said, you know, this was terrible. How could this scholar possibly miss the variant reading? He said, the arsenals of Nemesis are located in the recesses of the Bodleian Library. And I guess that's our job today, is to make sure that we bolster the arsenals of Nemesis, um, both through continuing that tradition of great acquisitions, but also maintaining uh, the preservation of those collections for future A.E. Hausmanns. Uh, and that's all I have to say. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I think I have a few moments if anyone would like to ask any questions. I have one at the front. Sure. Uh, yes, I'm going to repeat the question. So there were two. The first question was, um, remind me, OCR. Um, so optical character recognition. After you digitise a page of uh, a printed work or a text, how do you make the text uh, readable by machines? And uh, we use a variety of techniques. So. Um, with the Early English Books Online project, we actually do rekeying. So we send uh, the, the images to India where they are double keyed, and uh, the, the keying comes back to an editorial team here in the Bodleian. We have, I think, six staff at the moment doing uh, quality assurance, so checking, editorial checking of the, the, the rekeying. But with the project we did with Google, which was at such a vast scale that it was just unaffordable to do it that way. So they used their own software um, to, uh, to, do, to run OCR against the images that they scanned. Um, and they're continuing to run the OCR against those scans, and they're improving uh, the software all the time. And so, um, you know, sometimes it can read the um, 19th century typefaces really quite well. In other cases, it's less good, and they're, they're still working out how to do um, non-standard scripts as well. Um, but that's, it's improving all the time. So if you go to, to search for words on books.google.com, sometimes you'll get funny results come back. Most of the time, you won't. But if you keep running those queries over the next few years, they're, they're getting better and better all the time. Does that answer your question? Oh, yes. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure that I don't think we, I don't think I've seen any data on that, so I can't really really comment on, on that one. Um, uh, 
Just a, a very practical question. Um, I'm about to launch on a, a research project, and I want to be able to access JSTOR, for example. Can, you, can I, as a graduate of Oxford, access that through the Bodleian Library? Um, at, at the moment, I think you can. I think there, you, there is a way in which you can access electronic resources. I mean, you can certainly come into the library and use them here. You want to do it from home, yes. I think there is a way of doing it, and I'm not, but I'm not sure because it varies from publisher to publisher according to the licenses that we sign up, and I'm not sure whether JSTOR is one of those that's available. But if you'd like to have a word afterwards, I'll, I'll make some inquiries for you. Could you give us a little more detail on how you process the 1,000 publications or so you receive every day? I mean, a lot of them, for example, you quoted motorcycle maintenance, but presumably yes. most works of fiction as well can't be of yes. great interest to you. So do, will they be going straight into uh, Swindon? They will be going straight into Swindon, more, more or less, yes. I mean, we do have a kind of triage process where um, we separate out those books which we think are of immediate scholarly use and they get a priority in the processing. They get um, catalogued and put on the shelf and are available for use as fast as we can possibly manage it. Um, and then there is another class of material that we call BOD Xs. And the BOD Xs are all those fluffy toys with little books attached to them, um, motorcycle maintenance manuals and so on. And they get put aside and are catalogued when we have the time and eventually they will be processed. Um, but not as fast as we would the, you know, the, the latest uh, book on, you know, uh, biochemistry or whatever. But it is something which we do get a special grant from um, the Higher Education Funding Council, both us and Cambridge, um, to recognise that we um, incur costs because of being a legal deposit library that we wouldn't otherwise incur um, because it's material that we wouldn't otherwise um, give us. So uh, at the moment they give us about £1.4 million a year to help us to do exactly, um, uh, exactly that kind of processing. Um, we're hoping that after the 20th of October that it doesn't get chopped. Um, um, so it was very interesting what you were saying about the internet and about you know, looking at blogs, for example, of politicians. Mm -hmm. I was wondering because the internet is something so hard to measure because a web page goes up, a web page goes down. Mm -hmm. Do you limit yourself to what people give you or do you take screenshots, for example, of web pages at different times or? Well, at the moment we're just working out what the best thing, um, what, what the best mechanism for doing that is. When we can work with an, a particular politician, so we're actually, we have been working with a member of the current cabinet um, for the last, since 2004, actually, and we've been able to go and take material off their, um, their hard drive in their parliamentary office um, on regular intervals, and so that's a kind of physical capture of materials. And then for other politicians and, and uh, authors, we're just about to actually begin a series of trials with actual kind of remote websites rather than going to their systems administrator or the person who kind of maintains their website, which we've been able to do with some politicians, is just taking it off the web itself. And um, we're going to ex experiment during the course of this coming year about exactly what intervals we use and uh, how deep we should go in the hierarchy of a website. Um, there are all sorts of problems with dynamically generated websites from databases and so on. And so we're, we're still figuring out, actually, the, what the best way of doing that is and just how costly that's going to be. You know, how many... You know, there are, there are um, automated routines that you can run that enable you to do it, but some of them require actual kind of much more manual intervention and negotiation and discussion and a whole series of issues over... Um, a copyright and so on that, that you need to, to pay attention to. So when you're looking at the internet, are you mostly looking at political blogs or are you looking at all kinds of... We're looking at all kinds of things at the moment. The, the, the emphasis is on, is on political blogs and websites. Um, uh, sort of MPs use websites a lot to communicate to their constituents. 
um, and so they're kind of very localized and other bloggers deal with you know any political issue of the time but we're also you know we have JRL Tolkien's archive, as I mentioned, and of course there are thousands of websites to do with JRL Tolkien, and we want to sample some of those so that we're capturing, if you like, the cultural impact of a writer like JRL Tolkien, you know, um, 40 years after his death. But then there are other um, areas of the world which we have very great co collections in, uh, Burma, for instance. So. Um, you know, there's lots of uh, websites about Burma, the political situation there, which we want to be able to capture so that we're adding to our strengths of traditional library materials with this new, the, the kind of the ephemera of the web, as it were. Well, if there are no more questions, I'm going to leave you to the rest of your weekend, and I hope it's stopped raining. But it, even if it hasn't, I hope that you enjoy the rest of the alumni weekend. And thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you.